Thank you for tuning in to the sermon podcast from Redeeming Hope. We exist as a family of faith that follows Jesus and helps others find him by living all of life as missionaries of hope. If you want more information about our church or would like to support our ministry, go to our website at redeeminghope.org. Please enjoy this sermon podcast. Today we're continuing on a new scene in the life of Joseph in our series called Hidden Grace. So as I've been on paternity leave, uh, I, for whatever reason, I have wanted to watch space movies, right? So I don't know why I've wanted to do that, but I've wanted to watch some space movies. And so uh, Rachel and I watched Interstellar one night when we were like sleep deprived and we had just fed baby, but we knew baby was going to need to get fed a few hours from now. And so we were watching Interstellar and there's a character that the actor Matt Damon plays. Now I'm not going to, uh, it's, it's probably been long enough to tell you Matt Damon's not a good astronaut in interstellar. He's actually a, a, a villain in the story and he tries to sabotage these plans to save, save earth, to try to save his own skin, but he's been alone and abandoned on this foreign planet after going through a black hole. And so um, he says, hey, you guys can come and save me uh, because I've found where the next earth could be. But really, it's just a frozen tundra and nothing could grow there. And he did it all just to save his own skin. But that reminded me of another movie that Matt Damon plays the hero. And that's the movie that I want to talk about as we begin our time together. It's called The Martian. And Matt Damon is stranded on Mars. His, uh, uh, all of his other crew thinks that he had died. They launch off, they leave him, and he wakes up. His oxygen sensor is beeping, telling him that he's about ready to run out of oxygen. And he goes back to his base, and he realizes that he's all alone. And so the movie poster for the movie literally says, bring him home, and then in smaller um, letters below, it's The Martian. And so the entire movie is about bringing Matt Damon's character home and the rescue mission and the world coming around this idea that we have this stranded exile on Mars and we've got to bring him home. Now, I think this resonated so much with people and it resonated so much with me because I think a lot of us can resonate with this feeling of being alone on an entire planet where you can kind of sometimes feel like you're the only person on an entire foreign planet. And I think most of us in this world have experienced this awfully lonely feeling of being far away, like we're on an island even when we're here on Earth. And I think we all know what it's like to be left out, pushed out, or banished, or on the outside. And and I think this speaks to the human experience, and it never feels good. And you see, I think if we take an honest look at ourselves, we often don't feel at home. We feel like we live in a place that doesn't quite satisfy our needs. We all long for a home. We all long for an idea of home, but we all know what it's like to be on the outside of home. And that's what we're going to be talking about today is this idea of being exiled, because it's both a theme in the whole Bible, it's a theme introduced in the very first pages of Genesis that traces its way through the Genesis narrative all the way um, to the end of the Bible in Revelation, and it's actually a key theme in the life of Joseph. And so just a, just a quick explanation 
of the structure of the book of Genesis. There's actually four scrolls. There's four movements within the structure of Genesis. You see, it, it, back then, when the, the biblical authors were writing the Bible, they didn't have chapters and verses. They didn't like write a little one and then write a half a sentence and write two and write half a sentence. That came uh, along much later, actually. Um, so, that, so they actually prepared the book of Genesis into four different scrolls. And those four scrolls are from, from Adam to Abraham. So that's like Genesis chapter 1 to 11. Scroll 2 is all about the story of Abraham. Scroll 3 is about the story of Isaac and Jacob. That's like Genesis uh, 20, 24 to 36. And then the final scroll is the story of Jacob's sons, of which Joseph is kind of the pinnacle story within that. And we see actually at the beginning of Genesis this idea of exile. After uh, Adam and Eve fell in the garden, God exiled them out of the garden. Actually, he pushed them out and said, you can't be here anymore. This is part of the consequences of your actions. You're, you're actually not allowed to be in the garden anymore. And so we see, sadly, that Adam and Eve move east of Eden. And the very first two sons that they have, Cain and Abel, um, that they had a rivalry. Abel was faithful, offering the first fruits back to God. Cain was jealous of God's attention on Abel and ended up killing Abel. And so what happens to Cain? He is punished by being exiled. He is banished away from his family to start a new family in a new area of the world. And so we see at the end of the story of Genesis, at the last scroll, scroll four of Genesis, um, the story of Jacob's sons, this, this theme of exile has been going on, but it comes kind of prominent to the forefront of the story with the life of Joseph, and it kind of bookends the book, and, and we see that then we can kind of read all of Genesis within this idea of exile. So we've been looking at different scenes in the life of Joseph. So we've looked at first Joseph's family, the first couple of sermons that Pastor Derek preached and carefully prepared this sermon series for us, and we saw this idea of brokenness and hidden grace in Jacob's family um, and Joseph's siblings and Joseph's father, Jacob. Then we've been just finished last week looking at the second scene of Joseph's life in Potiphar's house and different temptations, the temptation of power, the temptation of sex, and then finally last week, the temptation of despair. And now we're moving to another scene where we're in Pharaoh's prison, where Joseph is exiled ultimately and forgotten. And we see, we trace through the story of Joseph, this idea of going from the inside to the outside, going from high on the hog up, going down. And we see this over and over again. He was with his family. He was in the favor of his father. He was the favorite of all of his, all of his other siblings. And yet Joseph was prideful and arrogant. He was like a teenager, like most of us would be as the favored teenager. And he talks about how he's going to be exalted above his brothers. He has these dreams that he's sharing with them, which is probably not a good idea, where he talks about how he's going to be exalted above his brothers, even his own family, even his own parents would bow down to him. But then we see he moves out into the field. His father sends him on a mission to check on his brothers and give a, a report. And so we see him move out from his family. And then his brothers capture him and throw him into a pit. They were going to kill him, but they end up throwing him into slavery. They, they, they move him then from the pit to Potiphar's house, where that, now he's in charge of Potiphar's house, but he's in a foreign country. He's in a completely different culture. He's a slave. He's been trafficked. 
And then we see this false accusation of Potiphar's wife. And then we see Joseph again in another pit. He's in the prison. So he goes from the family into the field. Then he goes into the pit. Now he's in Potiphar's house. And now he's in prison. And all of these themes of human trafficking, of suffering, of false accusations. And now he has a false imprisonment. And the theme within the book of Genesis and in the life of Joseph is exile, moving on the outside, moving away. But we also see that Joseph, the story of Joseph, is a story of God's hidden grace moving in these mysterious exiled places. And so with that, we come to our text today. Um, We're going to read the entirety of Genesis chapter 40, verses 1 to 23. I know it's a little long, but I want us to read this to get a sense of the story and where it goes. And specifically note how Joseph talks about himself um, and how it ends. So Joseph is already in prison. So, so sometime after this, the cupbearer of the king of Egypt and his baker, they committed an offense against their lord, the king of Egypt. And Pharaoh was angry with his two officers and the chief cupbearer and the chief baker. And he put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guard, in the prison where Joseph was confined. The captain of the guard appointed Joseph to be with them and he attended them. And they continued some time in custody. And one night, they both dreamed, the, this, this cupbearer and the baker, they both dreamed. And that each dream had its own interpretation. And so when Joseph came to them in the morning, he saw that they were troubled. So he asked Pharaoh's officers who were with him in custody in his master's house, he asked them, why are your faces downcast today? And they said to him, We have had dreams and there was no one to interpret them. And Joseph said to them, do not interpretations belong to the the Lord, to God. Please tell them to me. So the chief cupbearer told his dream to Joseph and said to him, in my dream, there was a vine before me and on the vine were three branches. And as soon as it budded, the blossom shot forth and the clusters ripened into grapes. Pharaoh's cup was in my hand. So I took the grapes and pressed them into Pharaoh's cup and placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. Then Joseph said to him, this is the interpretation. The three branches are three days. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your office. And you shall place Pharaoh's cup in his hand as formerly when you were his cup bearer. Only remember me when it is well with you. And please do me the kindness to mention me to Pharaoh. And so get me out of this house. For I was indeed stolen out of the land of the Hebrews. And here also I have done nothing that they should put me into the pit. Now, when the chief baker saw the interpretation was favorable, he said to Joseph, I also have had a dream that there were three cake baskets in my head, uh, three cake baskets on my head. And in the uppermost basket, there were all sorts of baked food for Pharaoh. But the birds were eating out of the basket on my head. And Joseph answered and said, this is the interpretation. The three baskets are three days. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head from you and hang you on a tree and the birds will come eat the flesh from you. Now on the third day, when it was Pharaoh's birthday, he made a feast for all of his servants and lifted up the head of the chief cupbearer and the head of the chief baker among his servants. He restored the chief cupbearer to his position and he placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. But he hanged the chief baker, as Joseph had interpreted to them. Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. This is God's word. 
We're going to talk about just three short points today. Talk about how we, Joseph was exiled to the prison, how Joseph is forgotten in his exile, and then we're going to talk about our exile remembered. So Genesis 40, 1 through 4, I won't read the whole thing, but this is just the part where the cupbearer of the king and the baker, they come into, they committed an offense against the king and they are sent to prison. And it says sometime after this, as we see in a few different places in Genesis, both in Genesis 37 verse 2 and 41 verse 6, that, that Joseph's total imprisonment lasted about 17 years. From the time he got to Egypt at Potiphar's house, the time he was to the right hand of the king, which we'll see in a few weeks. And so we see this narrowing of Joseph's confinement within the story. He's thrown into a pit. So he was a son, but then he's thrown into a pit. Then he was sold into slavery. Now he's a slave, right? So he goes from being a son in a pit to a slave at Potiphar's house. And then finally, he's thrown in jail, and then he's a servant to other people within the jail. So he's going deeper and deeper away. Even at Potiphar's house, at least he had access to the wealth of Potiphar, right? But what we see is that he's continually moving deeper and deeper into a more exile. We see this narrowing of Joseph's confinement. And, and he's, but, but here's what's interesting is that in his exile, he is joined and he's given a specific task. These two key men in Pharaoh's court, they're sent to the same jail that Joseph is now managing because he's such a good manager. The, the jailer actually put Joseph in charge of the whole jail. And that I, it's very interesting, these words cupbearer and baker. Uh, the word cupbearer is the word mashke, and it literally means the captain of drinking. This guy was the captain of drinking for all of Pharaoh's house. And so he was in charge of all the wine, all the drinking. And he had a, a very prominent position in Pharaoh's house. So he must have done something to either betray Pharaoh or betray his trust. Or Pharaoh thought that he had betrayed him, and then he had shoved him into prison. And the baker was literally called the captain of the baking. So he was in charge of all the baked goods. And, and they're prominent people. So when they're sent to prison, Joseph, uh, Joseph is, is meant to care for them very specifically. And then in verse 5, so we see this the new people arriving into the scene of Joseph's exile. They're exiled with Joseph. And one night they both dream, verse 5, the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt who are confined in the prison, each his own dream and each dream with his own interpretation. So we're at the lowest of the low in Joseph's life. But then two more people enter into his story. We begin to see some hope. Hey, all right, now it's not just Joseph that was put in prison. These other guys are in prison. And now some things are happening. Some spiritual things are happening. And they have this dream. And all of a sudden we see Joseph is curious about this. There's something supernatural beginning to happen. We, we see first off that Joseph is exiled to this prison. And then we see a little glimmer of hope here. But then unfortunately, what we see in the next moment is that Joseph is forgotten in his exile. But he had supernatural insight into these dreams of these two prisoners. So it says in Genesis 40, it says, when Joseph came to them in the morning, he saw that they were troubled. So they have these dreams and he asked these officers who are with him in custody in his master's house, he said, why are your faces downcast today? So he must have been serving them food or taking care of them. Because remember, these were prominent people in Pharaoh's life in court. And he didn't kill them. So they wanted to make sure that these prominent people were taken care of. And so these two people said to him, we've had dreams. There's no one to interpret them. 
And Joseph said to them, do not interpretations belong to God. Please tell them to me. So the chief cupbearer, he told his dream about the three clusters of grapes and then giving, squeezing the grapes into juice or wine and then giving this to Pharaoh. And then Joseph responded and said, this is the interpretation. He says, these three branches are three days. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head, restore you to your office. And you shall place Pharaoh's cup in his hand as formerly when you were his cupbearer. But then Joseph adds this, like, he's so confident that this is going to happen, right? He adds this little caveat at the end of his interpretation. It's like a personal request. He says, only remember me when it is well with you. And please do me the kindness to mention me to Pharaoh. And so get me out of this house. For I was indeed stolen out of the land of the Hebrews. And I'm here and I've done nothing that they should put me in this pit. So there's a couple things that we could pull out of this interaction with the cupbearer to the king. The first is that Joseph's supernatural insight is God working in Joseph's exile. Now, we got to understand how Egyptians thought about dreams. Egyptians thought that when you dreamed, you accessed the spiritual realm of the dead. You could communicate to the dead. You could also communicate with gods. And so there was deep significance within Egyptian culture to dreams. But here's the caveat. The only specially diviners, uh, divinators, could interpret your dreams for you. And we'll actually get to see this in the next movement of the story as Joseph interprets the king's dream. He had all these other people trying to help him interpret experts. It's almost like you went to get a series of Cisco certifications to learn about networking, right? And and how to build um, uh, uh, servers and all these other things, right? So it's kind of like that, except for interpreting dreams. They would have all this training and they read all these books and they'd say, okay, this number means this and this image means that. And then they would try to interpret people's dreams. So Egyptians truly believed that, that the gods and the dead would speak to you through dreams. And this is not antithetical to the Christian faith. We see that sometimes God does speak through dreams and visions. But, but what Joseph says very clearly is that the dreams and the interpretation of dreams, they belong to God. So he's giving a right approach. He's giving a right perspective um, and actually course correcting the cupbearer and the baker, their perspective of dreams. He actually says, actually, the interpretation belongs to God. So I can even interpret these dreams for you if you just tell them to, right? So you don't need to have a special PhD in divination. What you need to have is know that these dreams are, are God's dreams, actually. And so what Joseph does here is very interesting. He intercedes in his exile as a mediator. He's coming between the cupbearer and God. And he's saying, tell me the dream, and then I will pray, and God will give me insight into your dream. He's a conduit of blessing to the cupbearer, to the king, and even to the baker, even though he doesn't give the baker the answer the baker wants. But what he's doing is he's being blessed with a relationship with God, knowing who the true God is. And he says, even though you're people have enslaved me, even though I'm in this pit of a prison. He refers to the prison as his pit. Even though I'm in this prison, even though I've been betrayed, I've been falsely accused, he still has the, the, the character and the kindness to care for these two people, to ask them how they're doing, and then to be a conduit of God's blessing, interpreting these dreams to them. He's blessed to be a blessing, which harkens back to Genesis 12. And then it harkens forward 
to Jesus as our ultimate mediator. So Joseph's supernatural insight is it's God working in the midst of Joseph's exile. Secondly, Joseph's commentary on his life in this juncture is very interesting. Um, If you actually read through the whole narrative, um, it's been a while since Joseph has actually talked. The last time he talked was to Potiphar's wife that we see in the story, right? So he said to Potiphar's wife, I can't dare to sin against God and my master by sleeping with you. And then she falsely accuses him of of an attempted rape. And he goes to jail. But then the next time he speaks, he gives this interpretation of dreams. And he says, only remember me when it is well with you. And please do me the kindness to mention me to Pharaoh. And so get me out of this house. For I was indeed stolen out of the land of the Hebrews. And here also I've done nothing. They should put me into the pit. So there's a few things. The first thing he says is, only remember me. Remember me when you get to your position of prominence again. He's so confident in his, um, in his interpretation that he knows that this is going to happen in three days. And so he's like, please just remember me. Mention something to Pharaoh. And what's interesting is that this harkens forward to the cries of Israel to God. Remember me. Remember me, because they become enslaved in Egypt for 400 years. And so we actually see in Exodus 20, says, uh, God says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. He says, Joseph saying, I'm in this house. <laughs> I'm, I'm in this place. Please remember me. Please help me. And we see the cupbearer, unfortunately, did not do that. He then says, I've been stolen. He has this idea, I've been kidnapped. Now, this is not exactly accurate, of course, right? He, he wasn't stolen. His brothers betrayed him and sold him into slavery for profit. But he says, I've been stolen, kidnapped. But this is how Joseph is feeling. He's feeling like he has been stolen from his family. He feels like he's been stolen from his home in this exile. And this actually relates to this idea of human trafficking, right? His brothers did steal him. They did sell him. They exiled him. But then he says, and I have done nothing that they should put me into the pit. Now, of course, he's not in a pit like he was earlier on in the story. He's in prison. But he's drawing a connection here. This idea is a cistern or a well. And he's drawing a parallel here to his brothers throwing him into a pit and the jail that he is currently in. But we see that Joseph's understanding of his narrative is that different people have exiled him, but he is continuously being exiled in greater and greater ways. He's getting pushed farther and farther from home, right? So at first he was exiled by his brothers. They grab him, throw him into a pit. Then he's exiled by the Midianites when they sell him to the Midianites who are traveling to Egypt. He's further exiled by them. Then he's exiled by Potiphar. Potiphar buys him, puts him on charge of his whole house. But then because of this false accusation from Potiphar's wife, he's exiled by Potiphar. And now he's in prison. He's alone and forgotten. And the cry of his heart is to be remembered and is to be brought out of exile. That's what he's longing for. And his hope is that the cupbearer will give Pharaoh the inside scoop and maybe save Joseph, maybe give Joseph a job, pressing some wine or something, right? He's trying to get out of this pit that he's in, and he just sees this as one pit after another pit after another pit after another pit. And he says, I'm in the pit. 
And we actually see this throughout all of wisdom literature. We see this throughout all of Hebrew poetry. Time and time again, they talk about, I'm in the pit. I'm in the well. The waters have closed over me. I am completely abandoned and forsaken. And, and his hope is that this cupbearer will remember him. But we see that, unfortunately, the cupbearer does not look with me at the end of this chapter. On the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday, he made a feast for all the servants. He lifted up the head of the chief cupbearer and the head of the chief baker among his servants. He restored the chief cupbearer to his position, and he placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. And then we see the final verse, 23. Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. I find that so interesting. He just had to add that little tinge to just make it even worse, right? He didn't remember him, but he forgot him. He didn't remember his plight. He actually completely forgot about this guy that just three days earlier had said, hey, this dream, in three days, you're going to be back at your old job again. And it's going to be great. And you're going to love it. So what we see is at the end of this chapter, and the end of our text for today, that Joseph is forgotten in his exile. And that's where our story ends, that Joseph is being faithful, and he's, he's forgotten yet again in another pit. In prison, he's exiled. He's even lower than he was before because at least he had some hope now that this guy, oh my gosh, this guy's got the right hand of Pharaoh. He's going to help me. And then he's even more depressed. He's even more sunk down. He's even more hopeless than he was before these two people entered into the story. Joseph just wants to get out of this new pit, doesn't he? He's got this insatiable longing for home. And in the Bible, we see that exile is the human condition. That we're all longing for a better home and we, we never seem to find it, do we? There's a French philosopher named Albert Camus. And he says these words. He says, beauty is unbearable. Drives us to despair. Offering us for a moment the glimpse of an eternity that we should like to stretch out over the whole of time. Albert Camus is in despair, looking at even beautiful things that don't ultimately satisfy us. We want longevity. We crave for things to last. We crave for things to stay the same, and yet they constantly are slipping away. Everything is crumbling. Nothing is as it once was. Nothing is even remembered as we once enjoyed it. And we see that even the good things don't satisfy us ultimately. And so we are Joseph in this exile. We are in the pit. We are away from home. But it didn't begin that way. See, at the beginning of the book of Genesis, we were made for home. We were made for Eden. God makes us a home. He plants a garden and he makes it wild. And he gives us a task to tend this wild garden and to help this garden flourish and thrive and to help the world flourish and thrive. And we were with God. He walked with us. We were in perfection. Everything was right. Everything was whole. We were home. We were on the inside. But we went into exile. We see Adam and Eve rebelled against this beauty and against this home that they had. And they were cast out of the garden. And in the third chapter or fourth chapter of the Bible, we see that they are pushed out east of Eden. They weren't allowed to come back into home. And we see the beginning of this narrative of exile that leads us all the way through the entirety of the Bible. And my friends, you and I still feel the reverberations of that exile today. Think about a fond memory that you might have, right? Think about a uh, memory of growing up in childhood. I, I remember growing up in, off West Pasadena Road in Millersville, Maryland. 
And I remember these huge, tall trees that I used to love to play on and climb on. I remember I was back home a couple years ago to Maryland, and I drove by the house, and they had built a highway next to it. And those trees were small. They were dinky. They weren't where I remembered it. And then I remembered, of course, I was like four and five years old playing. And these trees seemed like these giant, amazing, flourishing trees. And they were just these scrawny little pieces of crap trees that never really looked that great. <laughs> you ever go to a place and it's not quite how you remembered it? That fond memory when approached with reality isn't, isn't quite as good. And so a lot of times we find that the memories that we have have changed. And the places that we want to go back to have changed. And we also see the world has changed around it. Or if it hasn't changed, it just wasn't as good as you remembered it. And that's the despair that Albert Camus was talking about. This beauty that doesn't last, right? It sends us into despair. And it glimpses. It gives us a glimpse of something. But then it never is quite what we want it to be. And so what we find is that this this feeling of lostness, this feeling of exos, is that we lost our security, we lost our home. And what we see is that this world around us is not our home. It doesn't even satisfy our most basic needs. We want longevity, we want meaning, we want significance. And and we find it for a brief moment, maybe in a relationship or a job or a vocation or a a children, but then then it gets lost, it gets crumbled. It, It doesn't work for us. You see, the home that your heart seeks, even the home that your heart remembers is a faint reflection the Garden of Eden. It all goes back to that. We want to go back to the safety. We want to go back to the security of Eden. See, God is the home that we remember. And what we do to, because there's this, as Albert Camus calls it, this despair of beauty, when we see glimpses of it, and then it doesn't last, is that we try to hide our longing for home. And what we see is that we try to hide it through distraction, through constant entertainment. We try to hide it through sex or relationships. We try to hide it with our children, like making our children the center of our life or making our spouse the center of our life or making our job the center of our life or maybe even making our ministry the center of our life. But our spiritual homelessness won't be naively satisfied with family or children or home or sex or our body, our career, our ministry. It doesn't last. And when it gives us this like faint hit of beauty like Albert Camus talked about, and it's a moment, but it doesn't stretch into eternity like we want it to. Then it drives us even more into despair. It drives us to other distractions. We try to hide our longing for home. And what we see is that all these other ways that we try to build our home around, they just crumble because we're made for a real home. And here's the reality. We can't get back to it. And that's a very challenging thing to consider. You see, Joseph is the sterling example of our exile. He was taken away from his home. He was in a family, then he went to a field, then he went to a pit, then he went to Potiphar's, now he's in prison. And he's spiraling away from the home he knew and loved. He's adrift, he's abandoned, he's exiled. He's in this pit of a prison and he sees other people getting out. And day after day, he's alone and forgotten. He's unremembered. See, Joseph in in the prison, Joseph in the prison is actually you and me. And then Derek, as he talked about the overview of the series, he, he mentioned that we would, we would see ourselves and Jesus better in the story of Joseph. We see ourselves in the story of Joseph in this pit of a prison, spiraling out of control. You see, here's the truth of the gospel, though. 
we went into exile and our hearts are longing for home and trying to ignore this longing for an ultimate home that we will never actually be able to get back to. But here's the deal. Here's the beauty of the gospel is that Jesus went into exile alongside of us. This is where Jesus comes into the story. See, Jesus left the comfort of his home. Jesus wandered as a stranger, an exile, an alien on this earth. He was the only human being in history who did it willingly. We even see in Matthew 8, Jesus says, uh, Foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Jesus was alone, homeless. Jesus suffered abandonment, exile. His own friends couldn't even stay awake with him and remember him long enough to pray in his hour of need. They forgetfully fell into fitful sleep on the night that Jesus was betrayed. Jesus' closest ally betrayed him publicly. Peter denied him three times. He was betrayed by Judas. And Jesus is the only person in exile that did not deserve the pit. But Jesus willingly went into it alongside of us. Jesus enters into our pit. He enters into our exile, fully knowing what it's like to be abandoned and alone. But here's the deal. Jesus just did not stay in the pit with us. He did stay in the pit with us. We know He knows what it's like, but he didn't just stay in the pit. Jesus made a way to bring us home again because he is our home. He made a way out of the pit. You see, Jesus is the better Joseph. Joseph couldn't get out of the pit. He couldn't get out of the prison. He had no power to do anything. He was just begging this poor cupbearer who's like so excited that he's finally out of the prison and back in favor with the king. He forgets all about Joseph. He doesn't remember him. He forgets him. Joseph had no power to change his position, but Jesus is the better Joseph who willingly went into the ultimate pit of exile at the cross and in his death to save us and to bring us back home again. Ephesians 2 says, remember that you were at one time separated from Christ. Does that sound familiar? Theme of exile? Alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off, exiled, have been brought near and home by the blood of Christ. My friends, you can be brought home because Jesus bought you out of the exile that you were in because he experienced the ultimate exile that we deserve. We ultimately deserve to be in the pit completely. Jesus experienced the ultimate exile to buy us back out of the pit. We see that Jesus was abandoned on the outside. He was on the outside of everything. Relationally, all of his friends left him. Physically, he was completely torn down, stripped apart, beaten, crucified, suffered. He was on the outside. Physically, they took him outside of Jerusalem to where they used to burn the trash. The place of the skull, Golgotha, he was taken out of the city. He was taken outside of his home. Spiritually, Jesus was on the outside. The father abandoned Jesus. He turned his face away from Jesus because he could not look at the sin that Jesus had become on our behalf. He did all of this so that you and I can be brought back on the inside again. We see in Hebrews 13, it says, So Jesus also suffered outside of the gate in order to sanctify the people through his blood, through his own blood. Jesus was abandoned on the outside of everything so that you and I can be brought back to the inside again. We see that Jesus went down into the pit of death 
so that you and I could be raised into new life in the presence of God. Look with me at Lamentations 3, this cry. I called on your name, O Lord, from the depths of the pit. You heard my plea. Do not close your ear to my cry for help. You came near when I called on you and said, do not fear. You have taken up my cause, O Lord. You have redeemed my life. My friends, our exile is remembered and resolved and redeemed by Jesus. This longing for a home is remembered, resolved, and redeemed by Jesus. So, the question is, how do you come home again? I want to go back to that Hebrews 13 passage again and just read maybe two more verses and have us see. This gives us a good little four-part process of how to come home. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside of the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. First thing is, go to Jesus. Jesus suffered outside the gate. He was on the outside. He was exiled He's in the exile with us. He's in the pit with us. But he ultimately experienced the depths of the pit like we could never have the capacity to experience that he could buy us back out of the pit. So the first thing you do is you go to Jesus. This is repentance and faith. This is hearing the message that we are exiled, alone, deserving, nothing but to be far away from home in the pit. And yet Christ has entered into our exile. He has saved us up from the pit if we believe in him. So you hear this message, you believe it's true for you, believe that you are in a pit, believe that you are exiled, that you have a need for him, and then obey by making Jesus Lord over your life and saying, I give my life to you. I accept your redemption for me. This is what makes you a Christian. Go to Jesus. Where is Jesus? Outside the camp. Going outside, that means we reject the placating of the world. We actually have to say, I'm willing to go where Jesus is. You will not have a home in this world. So this means rejecting, turning away from finding pleasure and delight in anything other than him. It's actually saying, my family won't satisfy me. My spouse won't satisfy me. My children won't satisfy me. My job won't satisfy me. My career won't satisfy me. My other people's perception of me won't satisfy me. I need to go out. I need to be stripped of all these things to see my deep need and then go on the outside where Jesus is so I can come back to the inside so I can come back home. And it says, and bear the reproach he endured. This is interesting. Jesus bore reproach. He bore our sins and our sufferings with him on the cross. This means that people are going to look at you differently. When you don't place your hope in your family or your job or other people's perception of you, they're going to look at you differently. They're going to think you're weird. (laughs) But we have the strength to bear the reproach that Jesus has already taken on himself. We have the strength to identify with Jesus and say, literally, to hell with the world. I'm going to follow Jesus. I'm going to place my eggs in that basket. I'm going to see him as my home, not this world as my home right? And when you do that, people are going to look at you weird, but that's okay. We can bear the reproach like Jesus bore reproach because we have a greater home. We're being brought back in. And finally, it says, seek. 
For for here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Seek the city to come, my friends. God's kingdom, God's city, the rule and the reign of Jesus is breaking into the world. Home is coming back here. Home is coming to us. We were exiles. Now we're brought back in because of Jesus. And now home is coming to us. This new way of living, this new way of thinking. We have to say is that we have no lasting city in this world. We're not first Americans. We're not first husbands. We're not first wives. We're not first fathers or mothers. We're not first employers or employees or soldiers. We are first and foremost followers of Jesus. And this world is not our final home. God is bringing in our home back. He's bringing Eden back or what Eden would have been had the fall not have happened. And so we live in light of the kingdom. See, home is here with Jesus and home will be fully here one day when his rule and reign is fully expressed. And this is the hope that we cling to. We cling to a hope that Jesus is our home, that with him is home again, that he frees us from our exile. He brings us into a greater freedom, and that freedom is going to be ever-increasing until one day he makes the world right again. This is our home. So in Lord of the Rings, Frodo and Sam experience this. They're exiled from their home. They're, they've been on this perilous journey. They've been attacked. They've been beaten. They've suffered. They're deep into Mordor, and they need to pass through this dangerous path called Sirith Ungol take the ring to be destroyed at Mount Doom. And so there's, they're climbing up these staircases and then this is dark and this heavy and the ring is getting heavier and heavier to the point where it's wearing into Frodo's shoulders and Sam is trying to help him up the stairs and there's conflict and there's difficulty and they're right outside of this cave where there's actually this giant spider waiting for them. They don't know it yet. This giant spider layer that tries to kill them. That's the only way to get into Mordor. It's the only way to destroy this ring that they need to destroy. And they're walking up these steps and they're exhausted. They're surrounded by darkness. They're the farthest they've ever been away from the Shire. Remember the pictures of the Shire, especially if you've watched the movies, the, this idyllic, beautiful, gardening, growing of beautiful things. And now they're in just absolute despair. And Sam turns to Frodo and Frodo's despair. And Sam sees just Frodo giving up. Can't go any farther. And Sam says these words that I think are applicable to our time today. I know it's all wrong. By rights, we shouldn't even be here. But we are. It's like in the great stories, Mr. Frodo, the ones that really mattered. Full of darkness and danger they were and Sometimes you you didn't want to know the end because how could the end be happy? How could the world go back to the way it was when so much bad has happened? But in the end, it's only a passing thing, the shadow. Even darkness must pass. A new day will come. And when, it's, and when the sun shines, it will shine out all the clearer. See, those were the stories that stayed with you. That meant something even if you were too small to understand why. But I think, Mr. Frodo, I, I do understand. I, I now know. Folk in those stories had a lot of chances of turning back, only they didn't. They kept going because they were holding on to something. My friends, we are holding on to something as Christians. That this world is not our home. 
We were once exiled, foreign, cast away. And we try to hide the fact that we're looking for this by turning to all these other things to try to bring us to the sense of home, but it doesn't last. It actually brings us deeper into despair because the momentary beauty we experience just doesn't last. But we don't have to despair. We have hope because we have one who has entered into our exile. And like a better Joseph, he actually made a way for us to get out of the pit. He made a way for us to get drawn back home again. And we are on the path towards home as Christians. And home is breaking into the world as we know it. So where, what do we do? We go out to Jesus, where he is suffering outside of the camp. We say, Jesus, I, I commit my life to you. I believe in you. And I find that you are ultimately my home. Thank you for listening. We gather every Sunday at the Clarksville area YMCA. For more information, please go to our website at redeeminghope.org.